This is Culture Matters in Malden, a podcast that explores culture and arts as a lens to discuss important themes relevant to the Malden community. My name is Osa Schwab, your host for today. In this episode, I am speaking with Justine Rose, a Malden High alum who recently earned a master's in biomedical engineering from Northeastern University. We will be speaking about her two months in Rwanda at a summer institute where she worked as a biomedical equipment technician at two different hospitals. Justine, it's such a pleasure to have you on this new podcast, Culture Matters in Malden. Such a pleasure to be here. I guess the first thing I want to know is just if you could give a snapshot of what this program was and what its objective was. Yeah, so the program was run by a nonprofit organization called Engineering World Health. It's a national organization, although it has many chapters at universities across the country. So I first learned about this organization when a representative came to my university, Northeastern, and talked about her experience at the Summer Institute. She actually also went to Rwanda. However, they have several different locations. They go to the Dominican Republic, Tanzania, uh, Uganda, Rwanda. They have the primary purpose of working to improve global health care. And these Summer Institutes essentially serve the purpose of placing engineers in developing world hospitals and working to perform medical equipment repairs, as well as uh, other design projects that can just improve the overall quality of healthcare at these hospitals. Sounds terrific. And, and what struck you? I mean, why did this seem interesting to you at the time? So I went into bi- biomedical engineering because I've always had an interest in the more technical aspects of healthcare. I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I used to work at Make-A-Wish Foundation, which I was actually placed at through the Malden uh, Summer Work Program, um, is how I started to work for them. And it kind of piqued my interest in medical technology as I was often working with WISH children who wanted to go to Disney World or somewhere else in the world. And I had to figure out how I could get their oxygen tanks or other equipment on planes with them to travel. So that's how I kind of started thinking about medical equipment and medical devices and how I could impact healthcare through being an engineer. So when I heard about this program, I thought it was perfect for me because not only do I have this interest in biomedical engineering, I also have such a passion for travel and learning about other countries and cultures and people. And I thought it would be the perfect combination of all of my interests. Definitely sounds like it. So where did that appetite for uh, cultural travel come? So it definitely was influenced by growing up in Malden, as well as by both of my parents who 
definitely value other cultures. I grew up eating Indian food and, you know, food from all over the world. I had friends uh, who were immigrants. I had friends from all sorts of places. And I definitely grew up with such an appreciation of different cultures due to my parents. They chose to live in Malden partly for that reason, so that I, I would be going to diverse schools, meeting people from all over. And I think because of that, when I went to college, I took every opportunity I could to travel. I studied abroad in Brazil. I worked for six months in Germany, and I did a lot of travel without, throughout Europe. I did some personal travel in Asia. I just kind of craved different challenging experiences because I was so passionate about learning about other cultures. That's so interesting. So um, if you could describe crave, I love that word that you use, crave. It's like, what is it you're hoping to gain or experience when you travel? Yeah, so when I use that word, I always think back to my hardest experience abroad, which was actually in Germany when I lived there for six months. I was working at a hospital there. Um, I was doing research, so it's a little bit different than what I did in Rwanda, but it was a very challenging experience for me. It was the first time really living away from home for a long time. I was in a very small village close to the Alps, only 2,000 people, not a lot of English speaking. I didn't know a word of German. I didn't know a single person in the country. And this experience was so hard for me. I was very lonely at first. I definitely had a lot of self-doubt. Um, I'm a very outgoing person. I am always around people, always around friends and family, and I had no one there. So this was very challenging for me, but I could also say it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And I came out of it with so much more than I could have ever expected. And that's why I kind of crave those experiences because I got the chance to have a really challenging one, overcome it and come out, out of it as such a different person. And it's almost addicting to have that. I, I, I love to be challenged. I love to be put out of my comfort zone and find my way out of it. I just, I, you know, I thrive in that, in that situation. Before you left for that experience, what were some of your questions or wonderings about what this might entail or what you might learn or what you wanted to learn about Rwanda or Africa or anything really? So, one of my biggest fears going into this experience was, is the work that I'm going to be doing actually going to help these people? And that is something that I'm so conscious of because I see so many examples of that, especially in the United States where there's all these nonprofits and organizations and NGOs where many people think they are helping and it's sometimes, you know, just throwing money at the problem. Sometimes it's causing more problems. And it's something I try to be really mindful of when I volunteer or, you know, work or travel even. And so I definitely came in with this fear, thinking to myself, I really hope that they actually need us, that the work I'm doing is actually going to help them, and that I'm not a burden on them as I 
you know, go about my experience there. And this was something I feared going in. And within a week of my work there, I knew that it was not the case at all. I could not have felt more gratitude and more appreciation by those that I was working with, patients, doctors, other engineers. Every person I encountered expressed only gratitude for, you know, my work and my time and my choice to come there alone. And so that was definitely my biggest question going in is, is what I'm doing actually going to help? And immediately I was met with the answer that, yes, this this is definitely um, something that is helping more than, of course, more than hurting. This that must have population. been a huge relief when you came just yeah. to have that affirmation. Can you share a few examples of how they expressed that p- appreciation? What did they say to you? Yeah, so I think one particular incident comes to mind right away. And this is something that I, I often think about this experience when I think about my overall time in Rwanda. And that was on my my actual first day of work at the hospital, I was on a team with two other engineers. One was also from the United States and one was from Rwanda. All women, which was amazing. Um, and we were given a broken infant incubator. That was one of the, the number one uh, repairs that we were we were doing were these infant incubators they were secondhand. They were oftentimes over 10 years old, which would never exist in the United States. They came from the U.S., Australia, France, a lot of them germ, German companies. Um, they were donated to these hospitals without manuals, without spare parts, without any training. In Sometimes they were donated already broken and immediately just went into what we called equipment graveyards, which was equipment that immediately couldn't even be used by the hospital. So on our first day there, we were given this infant incubator and the problem was it it wasn't ventilating. And we could not figure out what was wrong with this piece of equipment. We traced all, you know, electrical components, mechanical components. Um, We essentially spent an entire day troubleshooting and by the end of it, we were very frustrated we were contacting the manufacturer. There was just nothing we could do. So we said, all right, let's let's get back to this tomorrow. Because my, my team was actually working at two different hospitals, we had to spend the next few weeks at our second hospital for whatever reason. It was, it was kind of a logistical uh, issue. And when we finally got back to that first hospital, we found out that that incubator was still sitting there broken. So... They still weren't able to figure out the problem. And in that two weeks, all of the incubators in the hospital had broken with the same problem. And we were not contacted. Yeah, it it was um, very heartbreaking because although this was not said, we knew that that meant that in that two weeks, any, you know, baby, premature babies, um, any patients, existing patients, had to somehow have been cared for without this equipment. And I'm sure that that was not effective. And one can only, you know, guess the outcome of that. So this was, of course, very heartbreaking. And what was even more uh, eye-opening for me to see was kind of the way that 
the engineers and doctors and even patients, mothers of patients, acted towards this problem. And it was kind of with a lot of... Um, as if they were kind of expecting this to happen. They were so used to issues like this coming up in their in their healthcare system that it didn't really phase them. So we came in and we were shocked that they haven't had a single incubator working for weeks. Uh, we immediately got to work fixing them and everyone was kind of exactly the same as they were two weeks before because they were so accustomed to this happening. So we got together a team of engineers from the other hospital we worked at, we we brought them over. We sat in front of these machines. We spent an entire day, you know, um, using the internet, trying to find manuals. These were French machines. We were translating French. We were kind of putting our heads together. And actually, by the end of the day, we were able to figure out um, what specific part had, had blown in this system. And it was the same problem across the board as it was the same brand. We were so happy by the end of it. We, fi- we were able to fix all these systems, get them back out onto the floor. And later that day, um, a surgeon and uh, the engineer we worked with came up to our group and, and almost to tears said, thank you so much. You have no idea. We haven't had working incubators for weeks. They're an, an entire district hospital um, in great need of these systems, and they would not have been able to to uh, fix them without our help. And that's when I realized what we were doing was actually saving lives. And that was kind of the moment for me. I I just wanted to stay there for years. This is Culture Matters in Malden. My name is Osa Schwab. I am speaking with Justine Rose about her two months in Rwanda at a summer institute where she worked as a biomedical equipment technician. So in these interactions with uh, the doctors, the patients, how did your background and their background, the differences, sort of play a role in that experience. So that was another thing I was worried about going in because, you know, a lot of people talk about the language barrier. Oh, how is the language barrier? The language barrier isn't always the issue. A lot of times it's kind of the cultural barrier. We had someone there, uh, the girl that I was working with from Rwanda, she was able to translate um, a lot of people had basic English. We had learned some basic Kinyarwanda, which is the local language. So the language wasn't always the, the issue. It was more kind of combining the way we were used to going about things with the way that they were used to going about things. And we had very, although we were all engineers, we had very different educational and cultural backgrounds that at times it became an issue, but I think in the end, was for the benefit because a lot of times engineering is teamwork and it's bringing different, you know, disciplines and stakeholders together to solve a problem. And I personally love that about engineering because my brain works a certain way. Someone else's brain might work a certain way. And you kind of need that combination of thinking 
to to have a holistic approach to a problem. And, you know, I guess I could use an example is is speed of work. We're American. We work very quickly. We want to get things done. Um, me and the other engineer from the U.S., we would have easily stayed till 10 p.m. trying to fix something. No problem. Um, but for them, it's really important to have dinner with their families. You know, it's just a cultural thing to go home and to go home at 4 or 5 p.m. Yes, work is important, but for them, they they value kind of home and family life so much um, that that's no question that's going to happen. And we couldn't be there alone sometimes. So that's just one example of kind of a cultural barrier that had to be overcome. But I think that that's why this this experience was great for me because I kind of learned to to be able to communicate over those cultural barriers and find a way to have a basis of understanding of what the what do these people value, how do they work, how how were they taught and then think to myself, okay, how can I change the way I'm going about things to be to cater to them? I'm, you know, of course I'm in their country, they should not be catering to the way I go about things. Um, so that was that was at first a little bit of a barrier, but then I think it ended up being more to the benefit of, of all of us because we learned so much from each other. That's really affirms um, kind of a hypothesis I have that, I mean, it's kind of a known uh, f- uh, principle that diversity does potentially yield innovation when you have the cross-pollination of you know, styles or um, assumptions or background, uh, expertise, all those things. So can you describe an instance where the those differences did play together and there was some sort of um, fusion or some new uh, evolution of your combined expertise in a problem that you were trying to solve? Yeah, Um So I think the best kind of example of that is within just my small team of engineers having me coming from Boston, another girl coming from, you know, middle of Maryland, very different area than Malden, and then a girl from Rwanda. And I think at first we were all very different people um, and we kind of formed this this really great bond because we did exactly that and we figured out how to play on each other's strengths and weaknesses. Um, the other girl from the United States, she was a much more kind of uh, meticulous type A personality than I am. I'm very get in there, get my hands dirty, um, you know, figure things out as I go type of person. And then uh, Claudine, who's from Rwanda, she is a very um, resourceful person because of her being in Rwanda. You can't always find the parts you need. You can't always find the tools you need. So she brought this whole other perspective into our group because we'd be looking for, I don't know, a certain kind of tape or a certain screw. And she'd be like, oh, we just use you know, we just wind up this little bit of tire and we use this. And she, she was just very resourceful in that way, in a way that she was, she had been taught engineering, but we, 
because we're so lucky that we have access to all these resources here. We hadn't been taught that. So I think that would be the perfect example of how she she brought in her personal knowledge and we brought in kind of our more, you know, common educational background of like, uh, you know, having access to those things and combined it to, to solve a lot of problems that I think would have been harder to solve otherwise. And do you think that the um, perspective each of you had about um, your openness or your willingness to learn played a role in your being able to to work together so seamlessly? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that that each one of us, if we had had been more hesitant to take on new new challenges or to adapt it would have been really difficult to to get what we were able to get done done and I think that was another good lesson for me because sometimes I can get set in my ways and it was great to have someone kind of open my eyes to an entirely different way of doing things Let's go back to the first day you stepped off the plane and you arrived there and started inter- interacting with people. Um, do you remember any of your first impressions or thoughts or feelings? Yeah, so I I arrived um, there after a very long, over 24-hour journey. I was taken in a bus to my host family in Kigali, I was definitely, you know, very, very tired and delirious, but slowly taking things in. And the first person from Rwanda that I met was my host dad. His name was Justin, weirdly enough, which became a running joke, but they they have a lot of French names there. Um, And he was, you know, the the happiest guy I, I ever met to see someone he didn't know he was, he was so excited that I had showed up. He uh, immediately, you know, offered me food and, and drinks and uh, every comfort he could provide, which, of course, w- wasn't a lot. You know, he was a middle-class family there. He, you know, we lived in a small house. Um, actually, on a campus, he was a math teacher. And I I remember this day so distinctly because within just one or two hours of being in Rwanda, he actually brought up the genocide. And I, I did not expect this. I, of course, went into Rwanda. I think a lot of people, sadly, that's one of the things they immediately associate with Rwanda. And I didn't expect to really have this conversation with someone there, especially someone older, so soon. And within just like I said, a few hours of being there, he said, oh, did you know that we had a genocide? And to me, that was really interesting because he didn't think I would know that. He didn't think that other parts of the world kind of knew about that, which is, you know, a little bit sad in itself. And he kind of had this laugh he would do. He It was not as if he thought any of this was a joke, but it was it was a very warm and welcoming laugh. And it wasn't trying to gain sympathy or you know, um, trying to make me feel bad for a situation, but he would always add this laugh to anything he said, I think, to make me feel more comfortable. And, you know, he told me right away his genocide story. And he was in his middle 40s, so, of course, he was, he was about, uh, I think he was about um, 
17 or 18 when the genocide happened. He told me everything that happened to his family, um, his his whole story. And I did not expect to meet someone so open about it. And it was definitely another thing that I was nervous about going in. I didn't know how it was talked about. I personally love to learn the history of a place that I'm going to. So I was so happy to discuss it and to to learn personal stories from it, but I didn't know go, how to go about it. And he bringing that up immediately after meeting me showed me how comfortable he was with me, which made me feel very comfortable. And then, you know, his two daughters ran in with their mother. They're eight and 10 years old. They all came in. You know, we all talked about these things openly and he, you know, just kind of used that laugh to, to make it a very comfortable conversation. And I'll always remember that because I thought it was so different than when you talk to someone here about parts of our history that we're not so um, proud of. And even in Germany, talking with people there about parts of their history, it just it was so different than than what I had expected. Did he describe any of the national process that they had gone through to enable him to feel so sort of open and comfortable speaking about that? Yeah, so so uh, their president, Paul Kagame, who came into power after the genocide to end the genocide, his whole policy was based off of remembrance, so not forgetting the past, not covering it up, not avoiding it, but fully remembering what happened and remembering the people that were lost um, and remembering why things happened, but moving forward. And it is truly shocking that this was only 25 years ago and it's a fully functioning society. It's actually one of the safest, it's I think in one of the top 40 safest countries in the world, I, I truly felt so safe there. Um, there. A lot of their money goes to security uh, and just kind of teaching about this history. They, they don't hide it from students and kids growing up. They, they teach about what happened. They remember everything, but they, they work to, to move forward. And I think that's definitely how it's been able to come so far since everything that happened. Aside from that amazing attribute as a country that is now characteristic of it, what other nuggets of cultural identity did you glean as you lived there over two months? I'm glad you asked this, actually, because I I wanted to come back here with so much to talk about other aside from this, this history and, and show people that there's so much more to this country, of course, and I, I hope that one day that's not the only thing, of course not forgotten, but not the only thing people think of when they think of Rwanda because, you know, they're, these, these people, they, they value, you know, food and um, music. The, I love the music there. They, they love to dance, play music. Um, they definitely value technology. Engineering is very up and coming there. And their technology growth has been, you know, exponential ever since ever since the genocide. They they really value a clean pair of shoes, and this <laughs> that's <laughs> funny, which was is my <laughs> favorite story. And my shoes were so dirty, and I 
I, you know, all, all the time I would get comments on my shoes and, you know, they are just strong believers that it doesn't matter if you have one, one outfit, if you only own one outfit or if you, you know, can't wash your clothes or have a dirty pair of clothes, just, just have a clean pair of shoes, do what you can to clean your pair of shoes. And I had, um, a a very dirty pair of white sneakers and my my host mom took them and I've never and she cleaned them because she she wouldn't let me out of the house wearing these dirty sneakers (laughs) and they've never been whiter so there there's all sorts of 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 things that you know they they really value um education um they they are starting to get more into the arts it's definitely something that has taken a long time but I I went to the first art gallery that exists there. They're, the government is starting to support more arts programs, which is great. Um, they love Marvel movies. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, there's all kinds of things that, for me now, that's what I think of when I when I think of my time there. I don't think of, of you know, this history immediately. I think of what the people there now ca- care so much about. What are some of the foods that you ate? So it's a lot of... Um, you know, potatoes, rice and beans, lentils, bananas in every dish, but they have maybe over 20 kinds of bananas, sweet bananas, green bananas, red bananas, delicious. Um, and I actually lived on Lake Kivu, so I was on a lake and I love fish. I was eating a lot of fish, um, I, I personally, I thought the food was great, but I, you know, I grew up eating all kinds of different foods. Um, so I, you know, I personally enjoyed, enjoyed trying new food. One of my uh, dear friends has, um, she, uh, came from Taiwan to the United States and she talks about culture as air and that she didn't really realize her own culture until she came to some place very different. So I'm wondering if for you personally, being there in a kind of different environment with a different language and some different customs or whatever, if your own cultural uh, identity became clearer to you. Yeah, I think, I think that it did. I think that sometimes having someone from an entirely different world than you are from asking you about yourself and how you grew up definitely makes you realize those things you've you've never really thought about so you know my my host parents would ask me what I like to do growing up what kinds of things I ate they would say what what do you eat in the U.S. and I didn't even know how to approach that question um they would say, uh, you know, they would ask about different languages because most people there, they know French and Kinyarwanda, and then a lot of them are, are starting to know more English. Um, and, you know, they would ask how I learned different languages, um, if I know, if I've ever, you know, known someone from Africa. And I would say, yeah, I know a lot of people from Africa. Actually, there's a lot of you know, African immigrants where I live, and they would say, really? You know, everything, everything they would ask was so shocking to them, and that kind of made me realize, wow, this, this is, I'm truly so lucky to have had that, that cultural experience growing up. So finally, 
as you go forward in your career, you know, um, I know you're looking for a job and uh, exploring your next steps uh, now that you've graduated. Um, how do you think you will carry this experience forward in your next steps? So I definitely would love to, one, go back to Rwanda. I I I say this all the time. I don't know if, if you know, people believe me, but I, I, I genuinely have never felt a happiness like like I felt there. I think it's because everyone there is is really grateful and really happy for the smallest things and and there's no complaining, there's no stress and that that really affected me. I I was just such an overall happy person. So I would love to just go back there and I would love to do that type of work. Um it's very rewarding, of course. It it motivates me to to you know I, I could have spent years there. There, The first day of work, I actually stayed up till we, we left work at 4 or 5 p.m. And I went back into my room and I sat down and I typed up a whole list of everything I wanted to get done before we left. And I was up really late making all these plans. And, of course, we didn't have the time to do all these things I wanted to do. But I would love to, to do that type of work again. Um, I think that I have always been very interested in medical technology and the latest technology and, you know, what's on the, the frontier of, you know, new research and, and new pieces of equipment. And I think all of that is so great. But for me, it's never really sit right to, to work on these, these pieces of equipment or these new drugs or medication that really only serves this world, the developed world. And I've never really been able to get that imbalance out of my head that, you know, we we have access to such great care and we continue to improve these things that are that are already great, leaving the rest of the world behind. This experience confirmed it that I would love to to work where I'm really making a big difference. You have been listening to Culture Matters in Malden, a podcast that explores culture and arts as a lens to discuss important themes relevant to the Malden community. I am Osa Schwab, host of this episode, and I have been speaking with Justine Rose, a biomedical engineer who combines an interest in culture, travel, people, and medical technologies in her journey toward impact all around the world. Music heard on this episode is the song Dear Mashuka, performed by Rwandan musician Igor Mabano, composed by I.K. Clement and recorded on the Araye album released on the Kina Music label in 2019. Follow Igor Mabano on Twitter and Instagram at Igor, M-A-B-A-N-O. For more information about this and other episodes, visit matv.org slash culture matters or follow us on Instagram at Culture Matters Malden. Culture Matters in Malden is recorded in the studios of Urban Media Arts, formerly known as MATV.